Hello, William Daddario here. William Daddario. I don't go by William. I don't know why I said that. Anyway, this is episode three of uh, Thinking Will, not Thinking William. And the episode uh, topic is the performativity of plants. I've been thinking a little bit about this, and I've been thinking I probably need to explain that a little bit because there are probably people who are thinking, what do those words mean? The performativity of plants. Yes, indeed. Well, like I say in the classroom, um, plants are a thing, meaning people in performance and theater studies are looking into plants. Why? Well, in the many years since performance has been a uh, legitimate body of academic study, people have turned their eyes to all sorts of things, things that seem to act or do explicitly in life. I remember I was buying salt to get rid of some ice on my sidewalk in Minneapolis or St. Paul, maybe it was in St. Paul, a while ago, and I went to the store and it said, high-performance salt. And that's where we are. Everything has performance affixed to it. And uh, we should attend to that because there's a whole paradigm of thinking attached to the ubiquity of the word performance. And um, plants also perform, it seems. I guess the best way to explain um, this is to say that I first encountered the notion of the performativity of plants, plants performing. Um, when I read um, a book by Michael Martyr about plant thinking several years ago, and in fact, in the first edition of the Performance Philosophy Journal, Michael Martyr writes an article in which he asks a question, what would the dramatic structure and dramaturgy of a performance look like that was not modeled on all the previous traditional forms of theater but instead took plants as the model, a plant that grows outwards, a sort of rhizomatic movement in many directions at once. What would theater be like that aspired to perform in the way that plants live their lives? And from that provocation, a lot of people started thinking about plants' performance. We've had other articles in the journal performance philosophy journal that's dedicated to that topic and coming up in the not too distant future there's an entire edition dedicated to plants the subjectivity of plants plants performing um all sorts of things so this is um uh where we're at and i th it does require though a little refining because michael martyr um is, is definitely in his other book which is called something like um, the philosopher's plant he's not actually talking about performance. He's talking about the necessity of including plants in our thinking. And he shows that, uh, historically speaking, um, that plants have been crucial in motivating philosophers to think uh, all their big problems, think through all their big problems. He has some great lines, let me see, like, um, hmm. oh, like the philosophia the philosopher, the lover of wisdom, is helped along by phytophilia, a love of plants. And he also makes a point to say that it seems like in many different turns historically in philosophy that that which does not grow, namely metaphysics, is understood, intended, 
through an awareness of what does grow, namely plants. And he points to 12, maybe 12 different case studies where Aristotle, Avicenna, um, Rousseau maybe, and Luce Irigre, and Leibniz certainly, are all goaded in their thoughts through plants. Because plants are everywhere. Today, many of us suffer from a sort of plant blindness where we see trees, we see plants, we see flowers everywhere, but we don't know what their names are. We don't know what their properties are. Um, They're everywhere and they hide in plain sight, but they are crucial, of course, to us living and thriving. And uh, this is especially the case um, with forests, which are along with the ocean. In fact, maybe even more so than the ocean, the lungs of the earth. So everything we do, all of our activity, all of our actions, all of our passivity, all the things that are done to us on this planet are enabled by plant life. And it's for this reason that people start to look at the way that plants perform. I think also right now of another play that has a great sort of like tie together of plants and people. There's a play, oh, what's her name? Uh, Storni. S-T-O-R-N-I, Argentinian playwright from the early 20th century, also a children's book author, early feminist playwright, has a great play called The Master of the World. And one of the characters, a younger woman who tries to fight outside of the patriarchy and misogyny of the time period, that character's name is Tendril, like a plant's tendril that is looking, it it moves towards stimulus it's tropism. It, it unfolds in response to the environmental stimulus of the day. She is like both a human being and a plant that's trying to thrive um, in the sort of like toxic, toxic to female um, environment of Buenos Aires in the early 20th century. There's a lot of different ways that we could talk about plants performing. And as I think about it, though, it's not so much that we should continue to talk about plants performing, but I, I think it's important to get past the whole paradigm of performance with plants, which is to say this is back to the sort of performance of salt thing. Man, everything performs it seems like everything is performing. It seems like performance could be applied to everything. What is not performance? What is off limits to performance scholars? Uh, I don't know. It seems like everything is. And that sounds good, but it's actually troubling because if everything is performance, then nothing is really performance, including plants. And I was really challenged on this level um, a few years ago when I started um, studying the Cree two-spirit artist Kent Monkman. And I was really reading up on indigenous ways of knowing both in the Cree uh, families and outside of them. And um, I, I read this book by uh, Keith Goulet and also his wife. Oh, shoot, I'm forgetting her name. That's unfortunate. Mm, Margaret, maybe. Um and it's called Teaching Each Other. And in it, they sort of go through a certain um, uh, Cree-specific, although I think it applies to other indigenous and First Nations peoples, um, you know, worldviews, ways of looking at the world. And uh, saying that if we're going to, you know, either people who are not indigenous or of First Nations are going to teach people from those walks of life, or even more so, if within indigenous schools, indigenous teachers want to make a sort of like pedagogy that is specific to that way of seeing things, 
then they should adopt and work from uh, ways of seeing the world that are rooted in these old ways of knowing. And um, one of them is that basically, uh, I forget the Cree word for it, but it's that uh, we're all entangled in a life force system. This is the um, realm of thought that allows for the notion of uh, objects, things that in the West or in the United States, white people uh, and others would think of as passive, static, non-living objects are in fact alive. They have their own grammar and syntax. Words are conjugated differently depending on their status of li- of being alive. Um, so like the strawberry is alive. Now we know it's alive because it's a plant, but it has a real spirit attached to it. And um, um, all plants in this way do perform on first glance um, because they act along with us. They are part and parcel of our becoming human as we live our lives. But on another way of thinking about it, the word performance is entirely unnecessary in this regard. We don't need to say that they are performing. They are being plants. They have a certain property of their life that enables our life to thrive or poisons us. And when you know how to participate in the life force system, when you're sort of ethically aware of all the contours of the life force system, you can utilize the properties of plants. But reciprocally, you should give thanks to those plants in many different ways for how, in example, for example, how you treat the environment, giving thanks to the plants for sustaining our lives. And when I was reading all this stuff, I really wanted to just drop the notion of performance because it really felt like the whole edifice of performance studies was a, uh, a sort of colonial enterprise that I um, was bringing this vernacular, this, this academic language to uh, a life system, a world system that didn't need it. And uh, ever since then, uh, this is one reason, I've really tried to think of what plants are doing not as performance. I'd like to think if it's possible at all, I'd like to think of the performativity of plants without the performance. And um, another part of my life where this is, uh, has showed itself to be helpful and true is in the world of herbal medicine um, that m- my wife, Joanne, studies. And um, though her training is more of a Western herbalism, she has really invested in, in sort of studying about um, um, black and African-American ways of um, knowing the earth that have been present on what we now call the United States for hundreds of years and learning how different groups of people, especially those two, African-American and all of its diversity and black, more contemporary usage of black people use herbs um, to create uh, wellness in their lives. But nowhere in any of these studies does it seem like performance is, is a necessary uh, word or framework for it. Should we be thinking about how plants live their lives? Absolutely. Do we need to think of it as performance? No. Would it be helpful if performance scholars actually tried to drop the whole performance studies uh, language when discussing plants? Yeah, I'd be really interested in seeing that or seeing it at least be troubled a bit more. And I guess the only other thing that I think about when I think of the performativity of plants is that Oh, man, it's an ethical call to tune in to whatever it is that plants are doing. We talk about ethics. It's usually used in terms of people, um, how we treat each other, 
how we act towards each other, the sort of nexus of knowledge and power is where we find ethics located. We talk about seeing the face of the self in the other. That's one understanding of ethics. Or we maybe talk about it in terms of non-human animals. Peter Singer's world and the whole world, the whole wide world of animal studies picks this up. But plants too. And I think it's because if we don't attend to the way of being that plants experience, then anytime we talk about empathy for others or trying to live ethically in tune with nature or whatever nature is, we're missing a whole huge dimension if we don't think about trees and plants. So I guess what I'm saying is everybody should stop what they're doing and go sit with a plant for a while, a prolonged period of time.